This is Blair Durham with Black Wall Street Today, your media hub for all things black entrepreneurship, politics, news, and events in Hampton Roads and beyond. And now, here's your host, Blair Durham. Greetings, greetings, Stay greetings, greetings. Good morning, David. How are you? I'm great. How are you? He is the founder of McKnight Image Lab, where they help high achievers leverage their professional image and personal brand in order to get higher salaries and better opportunities. David has over two decades of experience as an image consultant, and his clients include the executives from American Express, Goldman Sachs, and PwC. He is also the author of The Zen of Executive Presence and has been featured in multiple media outlets, such as The New York Times, CEO Today, The New York Post, Huffington Post, and WSJ Market Watch. I am also doing well. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation because I think it maybe goes over a lot of people's heads in terms of the importance of as you say, executive presence, establishing a personal brand. So let's go high level uh, to begin. What is personal branding? Yeah, so fundamentally, your personal brand is, is really like your reputation. It's the collection of images that you put out to the world, and it's how people perceive you. And this image that they kind of receive of you is really formed over time. And so we're always communicating, whether we think we are or not. And so these images, these perceptions that people have of us really form our personal brand. Some people believe that your personal brand can never be changed. I believe that it can evolve just as we evolve as human beings. But given the fact that we all have a personal brand, it's either by design or by default, my goal and what I do with my work um, with my clients is to really help them to be intentional about designing that personal brand so that they can really control the narrative about how they're perceived in the marketplace, in the workplace, and even socially as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I like the distinction that you're making between personal brand and personal branding, right? This more intentional work that we can do um, to ensure that perception is reality. Maybe that's one way of looking at it, right? Um, let, let's let's dig a bit, uh, excuse me, dig a bit deeper um, around personal branding. You know, I think about how one of the things that I've heard is everyone should own their name, their name's domain name, if I'm saying that right, right? Mm-hmm, so BlairDurham.com, right? I should own that, <laughs> right? DavidMcKnight.com, you should own that because that becomes a platform upon which we can establish this personal brand. And this is outside of maybe the company that we work for, the work that we do, we establish this personal brand as a function of this this domain name. Uh, What what are your thoughts there? Is that someone that's looking to uh, do this personal branding work, is that a place to start? I think that's definitely um, 
something that I would recommend. But let me just back up, Blair, and say that okay. it really depends on the person, the person's goals. Because when it comes to personal brand, we all have different goals. In fact, I was giving a presentation literally last week, and I was talking about personal brand, and someone raised their hand and they said, "Well, my mission isn't to um, make more money. My mission is to really affect change." And I said, "That's great." You can use your brand to affect change or to make money. Some people do want to monetize their personal brand, and we can't make that wrong just because you choose not to focus on that. So I think that it's really important to think about what we want to achieve with our brand. For some people, it is monetizing because they want to get away from corporate America. And so, thinking about the skills, thinking about how they can really take their experiences and turn it into a brand, so that they can make a living off of it. I love that. That's great. But then, some people really just want to be known in their industry as an expert. So, I'm actually working on five different archetypes of personal brand. Like I said, some people are very mission driven. Some people might want to use their brand to monetize. Some people might want to become an expert, and so we really need to think about what is it that we want to do with our brand. How do we want to use it? And so it's it's not as simple as um, buying your domain name. I think that's great, but maybe for someone else, it might instead of their name, they might want to buy the name of a. A mission or some type of thing that they're trying to achieve. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense, you know. And I guess the thought in my in my head is around, um, you know, people that do more than just what they do, right? They they may be already in you know corporate America, or maybe they have an organization that they lead. But then separate from that, as a function of the personal brand, they have this, this other entity where it's like, no, no, no. You, you may be familiar with this thing, but this right. is me inside that thing. And, and using that as a place to establish, as you said, the credibility and so forth um, that then justifies whatever that goal is, as you as you just alluded to. I'm just I'm just playing with the ideas in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. And it's interesting when it comes to personal brand, I think that a lot of people have difficulty articulating what their brand is. So for example, as you were saying, is it basically me at work and what I do, or is it my baking business that I really want to build? Where should I focus? Where should I lean? And it can be the both. It can be the two things. So for example, when I was uh, earlier in my career, I started my career as a management consultant and it was great. I was traveling the world, working for all these amazing clients. And for me, it was all very new because my parents didn't work in corporate America. My father was a minister. My mother worked in various admin jobs and retail jobs. And so it was this whole new world. And so it was great. And then about I would say maybe eight years into my career, I felt like I was missing something. And so I started to really focus on style and image. And so I actually moved from Chicago to New York, studied at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. And then I started to build this brand as someone who was corporate, but someone who was also very stylish and who was really focused on image. I wrote a book, 
Now today, fast forward many years, that's what I do full time. And so I was very strategic and intentional about creating that roadmap and bridging my experiences from where I came uh, in terms of my corporate background to now what I do. So I, when I speak to audiences, when I deliver presentations, I can talk about that. And it makes sense to my community because they know that I can identify with where they are in terms of corporate. I don't always just work with corporate. I work with people with nonprofits as well as universities as well. But fundamentally, I think that this information, which is real, really where you were starting, is so important for our community because we, we can't leave our brand to default. We have to be really intentional. We can use our brand to get that next opportunity inside of corporate, or we can be strategic about how do we take those experiences and bridge it into something personal that we want to do and then monetize that and turn that into our living, just like I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd love to talk a bit more, David, about the image consulting work that you do. Um, I had someone reach out to me recently and say, hey, you know, Blair, I'd like to style you on an ongoing basis when you're speaking, when you're going to formal events. I want to style you. And that's kind of how we started the relationship. But then as we began to speak further, um, she said, yeah, I think what I want to do is more of a comprehensive beyond just styling for events and we do comprehensive image consulting with you. Talk to us about that work, why it's important for corp for professionals, who specifically in the professional space you like to work with, who do you really believe that um, benefits the most from this kind of service? Yeah, you know, I'm so passionate about image. And for me, image is not fashion. I mean, fashion can be a component of image, but it's not really the same thing. So again, just relating my background, because I think sometimes when I share stories, it might um, connect certain points and, and help the information to land with people. So I started off by doing styling, by styling models on the runway um, part time. I was working as a consultant and on the evenings or in the evenings and on the weekends, I would. Um, do fashion shows. I styled some magazine photo shoots. I worked with a couple of celebrities and it was great, but I felt like I was dressing them for the moment. And I realized that I wanted to work with real people. I wanted to make a real impact because a lot of the work I was doing was editorial, which is fine. Uh, but now I work with, when I say real people, People like yourself, people who work in corporate, people who have nine to five jobs and helping them to use their image as a tool because, because I believe it is a communication tool. Uh, when we walk into a room, we can um, not say a word, but we're already telling a story. Right. We're very visual beings and whether we like it or not, or whether we want to admit it, um, people do evaluate us and they judge us sometimes unfairly based on our appearance or based on what we're wearing. So it's not about wearing um, the latest fashions from the runway or the latest trends, but it's about using your image, using your visual communication 
communication to strategically communicate the messages that you want to communicate. So do you want to come across as someone who's an authority in your field as an expert? Do you want to come across as friendly? So thinking about those messages, which is sometimes something that most of us don't think about when we walk out the door. And so I, I think it's something that we really should think about and be intentional with. Let me ask this question, David. Um, you know, on the in the evenings and on the weekends when I am not working, mm-hmm. I prefer to be in athleisure, <laughs> right? Not quite a yoga pant, but definitely something very relaxed and comfortable, right? But one of the things that I've heard mm-hmm. is, you know, you need to be prepared if you're wherever you are, um, because you never know when you're going to run into your ideal client. So mm-hmm. you always be put together, you know, right. such that you can have a conversation where your actual value is perceived. Yeah. And I, gosh, you know, I've challenged that. I, I turned, I, I had a birthday last week. I kind of making some decisions, you know, that I really want to be this adult. Um, yeah. but would you say that that's true? Is that at a certain level you kind of, or at any level that you, um, that there's no such thing as, as dressing down or um, being relaxed? Well, I mean, I do think off, that... I guess is the question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that we can, quote unquote, take time off. So there's nothing wrong with wearing your weekend wear, whatever that might be. But you used a term, which I love, and I think that really summarizes this summarizes it, it's looking put together or being put together. And so you can wear your athleisure wear on the weekend and still be groomed, still look put together, still have things that are um, the right color for you, the right fit for your body or what have you. And just looking put together versus someone who just looks like they don't care. I mean, there is a difference. And I've seen some uh, people who are at weekend brunch and they're in their athleisure wear and they look really sharp and you actually look at that person. And so I, I don't think that there's necessary, you don't have to always be <laughs> dressed down in pumps and a skirt or a guy in a three-piece suit. In fact, I think a lot of those days are really behind us. And a lot of times people don't want to be that formal. There is a time and place for everything. And some people just love that. And so I think it's really important to number one, understand what really makes us comfortable in terms of being our authentic self, being our truest self, but always making sure that we are in all situations looking put together. So I'm joined now by Adam Rosen. Adam is an entrepreneur that loves to support business owners and share his roller coaster startup journey to help those on a similar path. As a founder of a tech startup, Adam spent five years leading a college recruiting startup that was acquired in 2019 by a leading college marketing firm. On the side, he's a paid speaker and has coached hundreds of startup and small business owners. His primary focus is on helping startups get more sales appointments hassle-free through his lead generation business email outreach company. 
Adam also enjoys sharing stories from his journey and learning from others on their own unique path through his podcast, The Rise with Scriz and Adam. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Thank you for having me, Blair. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too. This is always a fun conversation for me um, in terms of the startup space. I really believe, and I I say this often, um, that there's never been a better time to start a business. Um, Just the availability of resources to support startups and sort of the um, breakthrough with regard to internet technology, et cetera, blockchain and all the different things. It's just a great time to start a business. So what is your startup story? Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. I think now it's easier than ever to launch any type of business that you want. And it's also more accessible no matter where in the country you are, where in the world you are, or what your age is, it does not matter. Now is probably, to your point, the easiest time to start a business uh, because of technology and everything else, as you mentioned there. So for me, I... Even as a member of an underrepresented group, right, I still say that I encourage people to start businesses. You know, I'm looking at just the way in which the monies are um, shifting to support our community and business. And I'm just like, you know, now's the time to kind of release the fear, join the association, get the information and launch that business. So let's hear your story. Yeah, and now based off what you just said, and we'll get to this story in a second, but uh, you just sparked another idea. So one of my favorite companies I've been working with for the past few years is a company called Eureka. So any listeners, if you've not heard of them, please, please, please check them out. They are one of my favorite new companies. So it's uh, U-R-E-E-K-A. It was started by early Facebook team members, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. He's heavily involved. And the whole goal of Eureka is to support small businesses and specifically underrepresented small businesses. Um, So it's an amazing company. So if you've not heard of them, please check them out. I get nothing out of telling you this other than I think they're the best and they're a great resource where they provide a lot of grants, they provide coaching. So I do coaching calls every Tuesday night uh, virtually with small business owners that could be as young as in their 30s or as old as in their you know late 60s. So it's an amazing resource if if, uh, if you want to check out U R E E K A Eureka. Um, awesome. So that, that, Look at us. Cool. Yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing company. And they are doing so much to support small businesses, and they've been around for a few years now. And I've been working uh, with them remotely again as a as a coach for for a few years now. But my story is a little bit unique. I, I never actually worked a true nine to five job. I started an entrepreneur program my senior year of college. And then uh, it went well, they offered me a position to continue running that program, get a one year MBA. And it was at that time that I met my two original co-founders. And we started what ended up being a college recruiting firm. So basically we built a platform supporting uh, student organizations at colleges. So think engineering clubs, business clubs, and then we worked with employers. And those employers were big companies. So they were like Bank of America, Amazon, AT&T, and they use our platform to recruit students as well as to get data on those students through a survey mechanism. And uh, we did that for about five years. We were acquired back in 2019. Now, when I say we were acquired though, people think that I moved out to Hawaii, which I technically did, but the second and third point I did not do. They thought I was drinking a Mai Tai every day, retired at 26, 27, 28 years old, 
unfortunately, that was not the case. It was more of an acquisition of, hey, let's get our investors as much money back as possible, make sure our students can end up in a good place, companies can end up in a good place, and we can move on to whatever is next on our journey. So I always like to make that clear because I feel like the entrepreneur path uh, or the entrepreneur story is often glamorized, which I think does a disservice to all entrepreneurs because it makes us scared to dive in because we just assume, hey, everyone else is super successful. How could I be that successful? Right, right. No, I appreciate you highlighting that. I think another part of the journey that is a bit nuanced is that, um, you know, this idea that we should start a company with an exit strategy, right? That's not something that has been readily embraced by our community. A lot of times, you know, the thought is more so we start a company and we start that company so that our children, our grandchildren can run that company. This is going to become a, a multi-generational asset. You know, it's almost frowned upon if we if we look to sell the company, right? Um, but I see more people, um, more people that look like me starting to embrace this mindset of, no, you know, let's think about it from start to finish. What would an exit strategy look like for this particular company? What are your thoughts on that? Blair, I am so, 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 so happy that you said that because I feel like that, first of all, for me, and I always say when I started my company, I was 22 years old. I was a pup. Today, I'm 30 years old. So I'm hoping that next year, 10 years from now, I'll call myself a pup today because we're constantly learning. We're constantly evolving. But I was a big time pup when I was 22. And my thought was, uh, you know, IPO or bust, like I'm doing this for the rest of my life, all that stuff. And one of my good mentors who's become a very good friend of mine, he, uh, he always said, Adam, you have to build your company to sell it. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. But like, no, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. One of my biggest, biggest, biggest encouragement to entrepreneurs. And I talk about it at my Eureka classes all the time. I did it last week. You must build your company from the start to sell it. Why do you want to build to sell? Because number one, if somebody wants to buy it, hey, that's a good problem to have. Good problem to have. (laughs) Or number two, if you don't want to sell it, that's okay. That means that you have the systems in place to allow your company to scale and grow to whatever means you want it to. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Okay. So let me ask this question then. Biggest mistake you made with your tech startup. And this is another area, right? When I think about the Black business community, we tend to be um, over-indexed in certain industries, underrepresented again in the tech space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for those that are thinking about, you know, they have an idea for something that, that they could create or that they could partner with, um, you know, a co-founder, a technical co-founder to bring about, what were some of the mistakes that you made? Uh, probably too many to go through here, but I'll, I'll highlight my my number one learning. And it doesn't matter if it's a tech company. It doesn't matter if you start an accounting firm. It doesn't matter what you start. It's three words, product, market, fit. Yes. The, re- the reason why, yeah, the reason why my tech startup did not have the acquisition that we hoped and dreamed it, it would be is because we didn't get to true product market fit. Now, first, what do I mean by product market fit? When I say product market fit, I mean somebody buys from you again and again and again, and hopefully they're giving you more money because they're you're providing more value. Or are they willing to buy from you over and over and over again? Um, so for us, we struggled to get to true product market fit. Our churn, which means basically people would leave us after our after their first contract, was very high. In the SaaS world, you need to be at 95% retention or better. So 95% of the people are staying with you after each contract. For yep. us, 
that's you're much a, lower. I got to interject here because, you know, sometimes we're not the, um, the best way to validate your product is cash in hand, right? Mm-hmm. But that's such a short-sighted viewpoint. It's not cash in hand one time. It's not that, that because somebody, oh, oh yeah, you sell them cookies? Yeah, I'll buy a cookie from you. But are they coming back? You know, to make that distinction and say, we didn't achieve true market, uh, what did you call it? Market product. Uh, market fit. Yeah, product, product market fit. Yeah, because that retention wasn't there. That's huge. Blair, that is one of the biggest biggest, biggest things is we think, oh, we got some money in the door. We're great. People love this. This is awesome. But anybody can sell a product or service once. Anyone can do that. If you're a good salesperson, people like you, they trust you, they'll buy from you once. But the trick is, can they buy from you again and again and again? And that's always my focus with my co-founder now is we want to make sure that the product drags us, not we are dragging the product. We want to make sure that the product is telling us, hey, Adam and Pranav, who's my co-founder's name, hey, This is something people not only want to buy from us once, but they want to keep buying from us. They want to give us more money because until that happens, we're we're constantly going to feel like we're clogging in a leaky bucket, which is just never a fun place to be in as an entrepreneur, as a business leader. Huge, huge, Adam. That was a major nugget (laughs) that you just dropped. So how can business owners generate more business? I know part of what you do is assist with lead generation. Um, what, what does that process need to look like for an entrepreneur? So I, I, I love cold, as you, as you know, and, and with my business, of course, I, I love cold email. The reason why is because people will say, Hey, cold email does not work. And you know what? They're right. Cold email does not work. If you don't know what you're doing, you know, just like Instagram ads or Facebook ads or TikTok ads or billboards or newspapers or whatever marketing medium we take doesn't do- work if we don't know what we're doing. Sure, sure. So how do we make it work? So some of the big tips for cold email outreach, we all get bombarded with emails. We get bombarded with them. Most of which we just delete. We, you know, push it aside. Help me out, Adam. We're distinguishing cold email outreach from warm email outreach. First of all, how do we get how how do we get these cold leads? Are you talking about some sort of magnet that we put in place? So we've got a way, we've got some people that are interested because they signed up for something from us, but they're yep. still cold because they've never received an email from us. Is that the distinction you're making? Yeah. So cold email, the way I look at cold email is you're doing it all. So you're buying lists or oh, maybe you're scraping it. the list yourself. So it's people that have no idea who you are. So when we do our outreach, okay. they have, they've never heard of us. They've never heard of our clients. We are, we have a team that's building out these lists, you know, scraping the internet, verifying them to make sure they're real emails. And then we're emailing them completely cold. Now oh, there's wow. other ways, like you said, Blair, where, you know, you have a lead magnet, people signed up on your website or maybe sign, uh, express interest through a Facebook ad or whatever that might be those are warmer lists i got it okay and so you are able to teach people how to work these lists whether they're warm medium warm hot (laughs) or cold right is that what you're saying yeah typically with our clients they just say hey adam you know we we want you to just take all this off our plate so we basically automate the whole process we 
get the list. We write the copy. We do the eight follow-up emails. We manage the inbox. And then we just say, hey, client, here's a phone call. It's put on your calendar with a potential sales prospect. Go make the sale. So we do all that stuff so they don't ever have to worry about all the stuff that goes into uh, preparing a cold email campaign and executing a cold email campaign. All they need to worry about is doing what they do best, which is hopefully sell, uh, selling that client. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I've got one final question for you, and this is a big one. Um, it's around raising capital versus bootstrapping. Um, mm-hmm. Most of us <laughs> don't have the luxury of raising capital, right? Most of us in start businesses, particularly in the Black community, we are bootstrapping. I and mean, I think the numbers show that less than 1% of all VC, less than 1% of all grants, go to the Black community. So assuming we have the option and we can access capital, what's your recommendation? Do we raise capital or do we bootstrap? So I raised capital in my first company now, and I had great investors. I really don't have much interest right now in raising capital unless I absolutely need to. So that's number one is, do you actually need to raise capital? Because sometimes we confuse ourselves and we think that raising money, that's the win. That's the end game. No, it's it, it's a it's a breadcrumb that takes you closer to hopefully what that win is, but it is not the win. Sometimes, in fact, raising capital and raising capital too soon can end up in, end up uh, putting you in a spot where it's almost impossible for you to win. So my recommendation is always, number one, do you actually need this capital to grow and why? How is it going to get you to the next milestone? But if we raise capital too soon, especially if it's equity capital, it makes it almost impossible at times to even come back from that fundraise that we did. Raise capital if you absolutely need to, uh, but if you don't, bootstrapping is a great way to keep control because once you do raise money, you are no longer the boss. Stay with us online at Black Wall Street Today on Facebook and Black Wall Street Today on Instagram. And then follow us on Twitter as well at BWS Today. We look forward to talking again next week. Have a wonderful week. I have said and I will continue to say that the most important priority for the Black community is the Black community, not a particular political party. Hey, yo. When I say black, you-